for men, there is not much that needs to be invested in procreation. One ejaculation, millions of sperm, millions of potential offspring, that's all that's required for them. Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode 12. I have the good fortune of speaking with my colleague and friend today, Dr. Erica Berman, who developed a specialty of working with couples who are going through infertility treatment. Even if this isn't your reality, the subject applies to almost any relationship as it really highlights the challenges couples can face when dealing with something as involved as this process. It can affect all aspects of a couple's life, including schedule, finances, sex life, communication, social life, physical health, family, and the list goes on. The reason this can apply to all of our relationships is that it is an example of a perfect storm of demands on the attachment bandwidth. One of the easiest ways to think about this is to imagine our relationships like a computer. When we were on vacation and have our phones turned off and can let our minds wander, This is like your computer when it just freshly opens up and there are no programs running. There is a lot of potential. And if you want to open a piece of software, there is a good chance everything will run smoothly. The opposite is when you are trying to juggle all of the demands of life, work, kids, physical health, and then you try and add more demands to the relationship. That is when things can break down. Our computers are identical in a way. Once all of the bandwidth is used up, it becomes next to impossible to run any more programs. There are, of course, other factors involved in a human relationship. And one of the gifts of my conversation with Erica is that she zeroes in on some of the specific challenges that couples need to consider when going through this process. I feel somewhat sheepish as a man diving into this landscape because what I have really learned from the women I have spoken to, including a client as recently as today, is just how complicated and involved this is for the person going through infertility treatment. And it is really hard for others to understand. I accept that. And I defer to Erica's observations and my own limitations in genuinely appreciating the impact this has. Nonetheless, I think it is important to talk about, to walk around in the complexity of it, and bring to light the normal and understandable ways 
that this confounds relationships and can often bring up a lot of fear and confusion. One client recently said to me that until they entered infertility treatment, they really didn't have issues communicating. And this makes so much sense. For instance, strong weather events reveal weaknesses in infrastructure all the time. And these challenges that creep up in our lives put our models of relationship and self to the test. I would go so far as to say that not only should we expect them, but we should also treat them as part and parcel of the maturational process. I wanted to do this podcast to continue my goal of bringing us together in our human experience. There's a prayer that I learned as a young boy, which is central to the Jewish faith. It is actually widely considered the most important prayer in the liturgy. It is called the Shema, which literally means hear, as in to listen. I was taught when I was young to cover my eyes so you are not distracted as you say it, and also to say it in one breath. The script essentially says that God is one. As I grew older, I would close my eyes and I would imagine that what this meant was that we are no different from each other. I would notice a sense within myself that the forms of other people's bodies would disappear and that I needed to relinquish the sense of otherness that can so often divide us. A friend recently told me that it was sometimes hard to get through some of my podcasts because they are heavy. I respect that. And I realize that this material is not for everyone. I'm also aware that I am confronted daily with serious issues in people's lives, and that clearly influences what I focus on and think about. My hope, though, is that by stretching ourselves to inhabit the complexity of experience of others, challenges in life that rip us from our comfort zones, that we will be better equipped to love and be loved, less prone to turn on ourselves if life hits a bumpy road, but like the Shema, really hear that we are not alone, but fundamentally together. I didn't expect Erica's intensity at times, and if you know me, that is a lot for me to say. <laughs> but particularly around the lack of understanding that men have for this invasive and often exhausting process in women, I got worried that some of my male listeners may feel put into a box. While I think it's important to hold the tension and realize that the truth is like most truths, complex and multifaceted, I want to honor and let Erica's insight, experience, and truth wash over us because it feels important. And sometimes things need to be uncomfortable to affect change. I had a woman in my office today who wholeheartedly agreed with Erica's sentiment. So clearly there is growing to do so we can be more sensitive to each other and get over our own limitations and understanding. I want to thank all of you out there who have purchased my workbook from as far away as Australia. It brightens my day immeasurably to know it has value. I would also love to hear from you and get your feedback on the podcast. I am planning a podcast that will feature your questions and comments, so please send them to me 
at feedback at mitchellsmolkin.com. Lastly, please write a review on Apple if you have not done so already, and subscribe wherever you listen. I introduce to you Dr. Erica Berman. So, Erica, I'm super glad to have you on the podcast. And I've always been intrigued with the niche that you uh, found yourself in, which I look forward to you helping me understand more the breadth of it. But we both see couples, and in particular, you found yourself working a lot with couples who were going through infertility treatment of various stripes, I imagine. And I wonder if we could just start maybe by just helping me understand how you got into that. How did you eventually start seeing people, couples in particular, who were going through this process? Well, like most therapists who work in this field, it was based on a personal experience with infertility. So the first pregnancy that my husband and I had ended in miscarriage at around 12 weeks. We went in for that first exciting ultrasound at the hospital and they couldn't find a heartbeat. And I was told that they would have to remove the, the tissue and I had to have surgery the next day to remove the, the fetus. And this was pretty much the most traumatic thing that I had been through. And I was gobsmacked by the lack of support, uh, particularly in the medical community, but also from the people around me. Not always intentional. Sometimes it was extremely unintentional, but the things that people would say were just pretty ignorant and unhelpful. Uh, we were fortunate to conceive again a few months after that. Then after our first child was born and they were about two and a half, we started trying again and experienced secondary infertility. And again, just so painful, so isolating. And I just really felt like there wasn't a lot of support around for myself and others going through experiences like this. And it actually inspired me to leave my former career and transition to going into therapy. And so my intent was to specialize in this right from the start. Uh-huh. That, that's what motivated you to really go into the therapeutic field. Yeah, it was something I'd always wanted to do, but I feel like this cemented it because I also just saw a dearth of resources in this particular area. And I was like, like, I, here's an, a place where I can really make a difference. Mm -hmm. You don't have to talk about this, but before we get into maybe more of the professional side of things, I've really come to appreciate, especially issues around childbirth, how much that changes people, how much it affects, and I'll say women, I think it affects obviously both sexes, but obviously in hugely different ways. And I've just really been humbled by what I've learned, what I saw my own wife go through. It's like, you don't go back in some ways after, I know I've said that before, but it's almost like there's no going. It seems to me that <laughs> yeah. we are just different. And and again, as a man, I want to temper my, my observations, but I, I'm curious if you don't mind opening up what you you know, how you felt that you changed if you did uh, sort of after you had, as you said, like it was one of the most traumatic experiences you went through. When you look back, how did you change as a result of that? 
So I think I really started to understand, and this is the lens I use when I'm working with couples going through infertility, all of the connections between society, culture, neurobiology, evolutionary biology, and psychology, like all of this is so intertwined in terms of the experience and the meaning of reproduction and uh, all of those things differentially impact men and women in relation to reproduction. And that is actually what can cause a lot of the conflict between heterosexual couples when they're Mm. in, in this situation. Yeah. I love that you just brought that up because that it's the complexity of it and just how it really, you can't hide. I think is my feeling. It just brings out, it shows everything. (laughs) especially emotionally. And I don't know if you mentioned epigenetics, but I, I feel like the, I think you did the stress that of comes up too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The stress on the, on the physical organism going through all yep. of this is so immense. Yeah. I think that like one, once I was pregnant and had a successful pregnancy and then gave birth to my first child, I think at that point, the focus was on just, I mean, first of all, how amazing it is that a woman's body grows another human being inside of it like it's just it is pretty mind-boggling I mean just I mean for all mammals it's the same but it's just mind-boggling then you give birth to this creature and then your body nourishes this creature for like a year uh if you're breastfeeding it it, like it's just and I think I spent a lot of time reflecting on that and even just the weirdness of the whole life cycle it's like even the physical act of sex is a little strange if you break it down and then the childbirth portion of it like is strange and kind of bizarre that that's how evolution would drive things and i think it just makes you so aware of the fact that we're mammals and not much different than than any other mammals yeah absolutely you know i don't know how much i've shared this and i know we talk about our own children and them going through all their questions of of sexuality and and i you know, there's all this research that at, at heart we're at, we're, you know, especially when we're little, we're androgynous or this, we, you know, we carry both sexes within the organism. And I used to, when I was really young, like I had a longing to eventually give birth to a child. Like I remember as a young boy, it was something that I would, if I would daydream, I would find myself just intuitively, like there was not, not that it has any relationship to the actual experience itself, which, you know, having again, gone through it with my wife and just seen how it really, it just changes everything. And, you know, so many couples that come into couples therapy will go back to the birth of a child or the process of going through uh, fertility treatment as a time when they, you know, things were not as simple and innocent anymore. But yeah, what, what have you learned? I mean, now that you have been with so many couples, what could you say about what you see or what you most commonly experience with couples in terms of the challenges they face going through this process? The first thing I'll start with is, again, like the social context. So I think we have to understand how life course has changed uh, over the last couple of generations. So biologically, peak fertility for women is at about age 25. And for us Gen Xers, you know, our parents often did have children by then. But now, like if we're talking about 
you know, educated individuals living in big, expensive cities like New York and London, England and, and Toronto, then most people are not in a position, either male or female, to start having children in their early mid-20s. So, you know, the media has said that the reason that age-related infertility is increasing is because women are putting off childbearing for their careers. And this is bold. Certainly, they're not starting families at 25 by choice, but most women by their late 20s, early 30s are interested in starting their families. It is the men who are not ready. And this goes back to changes in gender parity in different professions and areas and spheres. So women are really overperforming compared to men. And so Mm -hmm. often what happens is men, even in 2021, they still hold very traditional views of their role as a man and a provider for a family. So if they're dating women who are making more money than them and more established in their career, then the message they get is, okay, I'm not ready yet. So I have Mm -hmm. to wait until I have all that to be in a position where I'm ready to settle down. So the women cannot find a male partner who wants to settle down and have children while she is still fertile. And this is what I see most often, which is the start of the battle. (laughs) And so in some cases that has women coming to me to freeze their eggs or to use a sperm donor because they are running out of time biologically and they cannot find a man ready to settle down and commit. So that's the first problem. But the other problem is, is even if couples have been together for a long time, often the man is not ready or in no rush. And so there starts to be some conflict about what, okay, when do we start to have a family? And if they do put it off later than the woman had initially wanted, and now they're having difficulty getting pregnant, there's a lot of resentment. So that can just be the start of the whole journey. Was a lot of resentment now because things have been delayed or, or there was this pressure yeah. to delay. Now there's resentment. Like this is your, you asked to wait. And so now it brings up a kind of wound, uh, a historic yeah. wound on, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that resentment can be carried for a long time. Uh, because again, with a woman's biological clock, there's no turning it back. So fertility starts to decline for women at 33 gradually. Once a woman gets around 40, it is very difficult to conceive. And Mm -hmm. everyone has an anecdote about some woman in their mid-40s who conceived easily. Congratulations, but that's not data, right? Like the data shows that it is very difficult. But for men, their fertility does start to decline, but not until they're over 40. And it's not necessarily like that they're going to be less likely to be able to conceive. It's more like there's a higher risk that the child will inherit damaged DNA and then end up with a health problem. But nobody seems to care about that. The the initial, the initial thing is like, let's just get pregnant with a baby. And so men don't have any fear or concerns about putting it off. That's been your experience that you, you've seen a lot of men who are much less concerned. They don't have the same visceral physical relationship to the biological implications as uh and of course like keep in mind there's exceptions to every rule but you know i'm talking about the vast majority of heterosexual couples this is sort of how it plays out and then the next step is that once they start trying to conceive the woman has an intense sense of urgency 
And when it's not happening, gets very anxious. Sure. And men do not get anxious. So number one, they, and I think one issue is that women right from the beginning are researching. They're going out, they're finding the data, they're understanding that their odds are, you know, dropping over time. Men aren't going out and researching it. So often they come in and they think that their wife is overreacting, exaggerating, getting quote unquote hysterical. And so now we're on to the second phase of conflict, which is, you know, they, they just don't think that the problem is that bad or that severe. So often women want to move towards medical intervention and, and men don't think it's necessary. Women are very intent on, you know, tracking their cycle and having time to intercourse and men start to resent that. So that becomes sort of the second stage of conflict that can arise. No, it's it's great that you're highlighting that. I was with a couple earlier today dealing with a different problem of infidelity, but it has a similar effect on the nervous system where there is an immediate urgency to establish safety. And what we don't realize, as you're pointing out, in an age now where we've all been meeting online for the last year and a half, you and I are in two different countries. I can carry my recording equipment with me when I travel. You know, we don't realize that we are mammals and that none of this actually matters, that our bodies will send us the signals that they need to to help us survive. And so you're highlighting that in relationships, there can be a huge incongruence in how two people are experiencing the same phenomena, such as wanting to have a child, and I have seen that as well in my practice, and you've actually helped me understand it even better, where one partner in this case, as you're pointing out, the woman, is, is just, there's this biological intense drive to ensure that this process goes well, and that's automatic and very profound and difficult for the other partner to really understand on a visceral level just the urgency. And so the, the danger there, of course, is that, the, that that people turn on each other and where, you know, there's two people trying to have a child, all of a sudden this lack of understanding just actually makes the anxiety go up even more because yep. you know, the person says, Oh my God, not only not only is this urgent, I'm alone. Like I'm I'm yes, alone in, exactly. in exactly. Exactly. And so now is exactly the time where evolutionary biology is key to understanding this all because for men, there is not much that needs to be invested in procreation. One ejaculation, millions of sperm, millions of potential offspring, that's all that's required for them. So that's, the, and then if you want to put it in cultural context, men don't get the same pressure, right? Like you, like if a man decides never to have children in his lifetime, nobody blinks. But if a woman does, it's just judged every moment of her life. But in terms of, again, like the like evolutionary biology for women, okay, we have to carry pregnancy and we have to go through childbirth. Both are potentially life-threatening and excruciatingly painful. So mm. the female of any species has to be infused with this very intense drive to do this. That supersedes rationality or reason. And so the way I try to explain it to men is like, think about when you're hangry. Okay, your body thinks you're starving. You're not starving. You just went a few too many hours without eating. But it has such a visceral reaction on you. 
it's just a primal instinct for self-preservation. And this is a primal instinct. And it's it's infused in women to a much greater degree because there's so much more at stake for us. What do you experience then when you try to communicate and help the partner understand what's going on? Uh, do you do you feel that you're able to reach people? I'm sure there's a range of responses, but could you help me a bit? Like what what's your sense when you really lay this out and try to say, look, here's here's what's been triggered, here's what's going on, this is why it is so urgent. Can you help me a bit? Like what happens? Yeah. So the first thing is normalizing it, right? So they come in as a couple and let's also contextualize the fact that men don't go talk to other men about these experiences and, and share, you know, so women have talked to other women and they know that other husbands are acting the same, but men don't do that. They're not sharing these experiences with their wives, with their guy friends to normalize it. So the first thing I do is normalize it and say, she is acting exactly the way most women behave when they're going through infertility. She's not hysterical. She's not on the edge of having a nervous breakdown. This is the normal reaction. The normal reaction to infertility for a woman is incredibly intense. And so I think once I normalize it for them, that certainly helps. Mm -hmm. But then I don't, you know, it's not like I want the man to feel like that he doesn't deserve any empathy. I mean, what I try to do with couples is I say, what you guys have to do is understand that both of you are suffering, but for much different reasons. Because from a man's perspective, and I hear the, these exact words from men a lot. They'll say, I don't even understand, like, I don't even recognize my wife. I don't understand mm. what she's feeling, but she seems like a completely different person. Oh, yeah. And I can't help. I feel helpless. And she's miserable all the time. I can't make her feel better. So what I do with the couple is I say, this is textbook, like heterosexual couples very often fall into this pattern. What you have to do is accept that it's a tough journey for both of you, but for very different reasons and focus on validating the, the difficulties your partner is having and just trying to be there and make space for them. And that does seem to help. You know, often men will try to calm their wife down by, you know, the, the famous just calm down, which never works well, but also by <laughs> don't worry, everything will work out. We will get pregnant eventually. And the problem is, is that's basically hollow. Like there, there's no guarantees, unfortunately, with uh, with fertility. And so this actually makes women feel worse a lot of the time. So I sure. I, I get them to try to take the tack of like, don't minimize your wife's emotions don't try to fix this problem because you can't but just make space for her like i'm so sorry you're feeling this way i'm with you whatever i can do i want to pause here and slow down this last piece because i think it is at the heart of so much relationship distress one of the greatest laments of couples is how it is possible to have such negative reactivity when you love each other so much. But think about precisely what Erica is saying. You enter into a phase in the relationship where your partner is struggling with energy, intimacy, anxiety, 
And as Erica says, you might not even recognize them. The level of distress we feel is actually equal to our love, not the other way around. And that messes us up. Although I talk about these issues and help couples every day, as a husband and lover, I truly feel on my knees at times to know how to find the words and actions to be comforting, because at the end of the day, these are the places that we break, these are the places where we grow, and we cannot expect to go into these phases with the answers and the language already prepared. We, we have to build a bridge while we are falling from the cliff. I like to take a moment in my podcasts to thank you for listening. I'll be developing ways to engage more as I want to hear your feedback and have conversations with you. You can find me on Instagram at I am Mitchell Smolkin. And if you feel inclined to join my band of supporters, you can donate to the podcast at mitchellsmolkin.com. There is a link at the bottom. Also, there are 20 spots this coming October in Stockholm at the Dignity of Suffering Summit, which will take place in the historic Central Baths with one of the most beautiful Art Deco swimming pools I have ever seen. If you're interested, please email info at mitchellsmolkin.com to sign up for more information. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast if you have time. It is a great help, and I'm happy to report that we are reaching listeners all over the world. So please share this with those who you think will benefit. Now, back to our show. It is such a delicate and important conversation. And the way that I often frame it for couples, and I think we've all been through this, is where, you know, these are some really tough ways to come out of the honeymoon phase of relationships, you know, that you go from. And often that's when, you know, if, if your wedding was fine, if, if your careers are relatively okay, this is often the first place where you hit this emotional wall. And I think that at the heart of it, what I have seen is it's hard to see someone else go through pain. And where it gets so confusing, I think, for a partner that cares about their wife is that if we don't know how to talk about our loneliness or sadness, as you're saying, it comes out in trying to pacify or just say, look, it's all going to work out. And I noticed that if I slow things down, often there's a lot of pain underneath that that's actually not being expressed. It's just mm -hmm. that people don't know how to say, I don't know what to do, or I don't know how to help you, or like you said, I don't, I don't recognize you anymore. And those are just such intense uh, transitions. I know you can't go into any specifics about couples, but I'm wondering if, if there's any moments that you remember that really inspired you or that just come to mind, you know, where you, you see a couple kind of really, I don't know, come together around this and get back to kind of being a team. I'm just curious uh, so others can sort of hear what that looks like. Yeah, well, again, I think it starts with a lot of the normalizing of what they're going through and for them to be able to see that their partner's response is fairly typical for a man or for a woman. Because often what the woman is thinking is, my God, my husband is insensitive. He doesn't care. He's not invested. So the same way the husband is thinking his wife is irrational and exaggerating. So it's 
pulling them back from that and saying, no, like what you guys are going through is exactly what you should be going through in a sense, given the the circumstance. And I think once some of that normalizing has happened and they're not vilifying their partner so much, there can be huge leaps in terms of the ways in which they can then support each other through the journey. I guess the other place can be, and this is another stumbling block for couples, is how far to go in the journey. So for women, often they will stop at nothing. So if they need a sperm donor, egg donor, surrogate, throw everything at them. They don't care. They just want to be a a parent. Often men don't even want to start medical treatment at all, let alone start to move towards those things. Especially, I would say a big, a big stumbling block for a couple can be when it's male factor infertility. And I want to highlight the fact that actually the number one reason couples go see fertility clinics is male factor. So there's a, a, a myth that fertility problems can only be a female problem, but that's not true at all. And research worldwide is showing significant drops in sperm counts, and they believe it's due to poor lifestyle and toxic chemicals in the environment. But anyway, it's very common for couples to come in and maybe the woman is dealing with some some age-related issues, but often men have male factor issues. And if it then requires something like a sperm donor, there can be an impasse where, you know, the the woman is like, okay, whatever it takes, I want to be a parent. And for men, even in 2021, there's still a lot of very antiquated ideas about you know, your virility being a sign of your worth as a man. And so a lot of shame and stigma around not being able to uh, impregnate your wife. And then the idea of using a sperm donor, they find very emasculating. So what I love is when, you know, I have a couple in a situation like that, that is essentially at an impasse and I can get them to come in. And I think the one thing I'm most passionate about in my work is trying to get people to consider family as something way more than genetic ties. In Canada, we're so fortunate we can create families in a million different ways because it is legal to use egg donors, sperm donors, surrogates. We have embryo donation programs. I always say to my clients, where there's a will, there's a way. So I I think what really inspires me is when I see couples open their minds up to that. Mm-hmm. And let go of this belief of we need to be a nuclear family in the traditional way with heterosexual mom, dad, and two biological children and a white pig fence. And when they can expand their minds of what family really means and end up conceiving with whatever way they need to and create just this harmonious, loving family, especially if one of the parents really had a lot of ambivalence around it at the beginning, that that just that just thrills me. That's kind of like. Oh, totally. A few thoughts come to mind. One is that we we're going for dinner tonight with good friends of ours. It's a same-sex couple, two men. Their twins were born in India with a surrogate. They're my son's best friends. We've spent the last basically three weeks doing different stuff together. And they're like a super loving, awesome family. And these kids are incredible. So, so I mean, there's many ways and i since since things you know happened relatively i guess in a conventional sense for me it's been amazing to sort of really see that to see what all the and it sounds like you're saying the same thing that 
that it's so lovely for you when you when a couple comes in nervous, anxious, having to really revise their old stories about what family is, and to see them really just open up to possibilities must be really touching. Yesterday we went, so there's a UNESCO heritage site around the corner from where we are. It's 40 kilometers long and it's stone carvings from as far back as 1800 BCE. Oh, wow. And, and what do you know? These are rudimentary carvings, but pretty amazing that they were even sort of tracking their life through art. But the men either have swords, but the men all have huge phalluses. So they've, <laughs> so th there are boats, there's the occasional woman, there's the occasional animal, and there's a whole bunch of men with big penises. Uh, and so they felt, they felt the need to obviously show their virility. So there's something quite innate, <laughs> as you're pointing out, which I think is really helpful to tell people, you know, because it, it can go to blame so easily these feelings of providing or what you pointed out, which makes, it's very helpful to think about that men will often say, no, I have to, you know, I have to stamp my passport of being the provider before I even consider having a family. And these are, these are also biological for men, actually. These are also biological inheritances in terms of how we experience our own function that we often as culture shifts have to work against and work through and I mean, what about same-sex couples? Because I've worked with, uh, I've seen that similar kinds of attachment panic, maybe not, well, I don't know. I want to find out from you. I mean, is it really just men who have a lack of understanding? Or have, have you seen you know, two women that are together where the one who's trying to get pregnant, it, there's, a, there's a difference in how they're experiencing or are they really on the same page all the time? Absolutely. No, 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 absolutely. A absolutely. I mean, all the patterns I was describing are very much typical for for heterosexual couples, but for for same sex couples with with gay couples, I mean, it's different because neither of them are carrying a pregnancy. Interestingly, in my experience, I've I've never come across a a gay couple where there's been conflict around well, who's gonna who's gonna be the biological parent, like who's gonna provide the sperm. They're, usually one person just inherently feels stronger about it. Or sometimes they'll even say, let's analyze our sperm and see who has healthier sperm. Like there's, I've seen very little conflict. When it's two women, again, it, it's, I've rarely seen sort of conflict. I mean, I think there have been situations I've, I've uh, worked with couples on where the one who is going through the treatment does feel very alone because, you know, it, regardless of whether your partner is male or female, there's only so much they can do. And I think, you know, what often happens is people start fertility treatment, not for medical reasons, either because they're in a same sex couple or it's a single woman or, or whatever. And it's not as easy to conceive as, as we're told when we're teenagers. And so it can be a very, very emotional and draining process. If you go in and you're told that you're healthy, there's no obvious medical issues, but then it can take years. It can take years to conceive just because it's not that easy. And so in that situation, sometimes the partner who is, again, going through years of treatment can start to feel disengaged from, from their partner who is not going through the treatment. And it can be complicated also by like, if one really wanted to carry the pregnancy and it's just not working, they have the option that the other one can carry the pregnancy, but then that can bring up a lot of feelings 
for the one who really wanted it. Just in my own experience, I haven't consistently seen the same level of conflict that I see with heterosexual couples. Mm -hmm. It strikes me that, and I'm curious what your observations have been or what you've noticed. These events, if we look at them objectively, for me, they form kind of a, a whole set of, of extremely demanding situations for couples that include many other things, such as you know leaving family, moving overseas for work, people losing job, critical illness. I've done a podcast with a couple where there was you know chronic, possibly terminal illness, and just the demands it places on the relationship to communicate. And I've noticed with couples that there's a huge range of you know, of how one is able to talk about and tolerate distress. And for me, at least, that that can often be helpful if, if there's an acknowledgement of the despair or the gravity of a, of a situation. And I wonder what you've seen has helped couples get through this. Are there certain either skill sets or tools that couples sometimes come in with and you're like, oh, this is why maybe this is not as provocative for you two, or, or, or this is why actually you're really struggling to get through this. Like, is there any, just for couples that are listening, because I think it's good to be prepared for this. You know, I had a young couple come to me today and they say, are you the, are we the youngest couple you've ever seen? <laughs> and I was like, first of all, no. And second of all, it's great that you're here when, when it's early because you're building, you know, you're building scaffolding for potentially infertility. I don't know. I don't wish that upon them, but at least if you're going in with a foundation, is that how you see it? Do you see differences in the resources? Oh, for sure. For sure. Okay. So there's, there's a couple of different answers to that. So in general, I would say that the less the couple is tied to, again, these very traditional ideas of gender roles and family and all of that stuff, the better off they do because, number one, they hold less shame and stigma around the infertility in the first place. So there's less defensiveness and there's less anxiety from that perspective. And also, then they are more open with other people around them and not relying 100% on their partner for any emotional support. You know, I've seen couples who have spent 10 years going through infertility and not told a soul. So it's just been the two of them holding all of that. So definitely, you know, again, having more progressive ideas of, around fertility, around family helps because they just open up themselves to more support from others. I think that just generally being able to be empathetic to your partner is helpful. Even if you're not experiencing what they're experiencing, being able to understand that they're suffering and and that there's still ways to support your partner, even if you can't make the problem go away. What do you think helps people become more empathetic? Or what, if someone's struggling with understanding or what have you seen that helps people create space for the other? Um, well, again, I think part of it is is like educating yourself around it. And I think this is why, you know, sometimes men struggle because they often aren't the ones going and reading and researching about what's normal, what's not normal, and what exactly is my partner going through. So I think, I mean, knowledge is key. That's a big piece of it. 
I have to say, just to come in, I it's perhaps related. Well, I think it is related. I was not aware, and this also I don't think receives a lot of attention in the women that I've spoken to. It took years, sometimes decades, to get diagnosed with chronic issues around the menstrual cycle, often leading yes. to to yes. periods that approached even like psychosis. Yes. Yep. And I have to say it, I came home one day from work and my attitude towards my wife, just it just changed. And I look back and like you said, I just didn't know. Like I, I just didn't know. I didn't know how bad it could be. And I just became more empathetic. So you're right. It, it really helped me to understand how normal it is and also how awful it can be and how alone, how lonely it can be to, I guess, because of course we're coming out of a, you know, of a man's world. So, so as you're pointing out this, that, that helps me understand why you're so driven and passionate, because it's important that you try to open the door to really advocate for what this is like, is what I guess I'm picking up in your, in your passion for this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what is generally helpful for couples or even individuals going through this for coping is to not personalize it. Right. So if people are coming at this from the why me, am I being punished for that perspective? Like I'm cursed, we're cursed, then they're blaming themselves and they're also more likely to blame their partner. Whereas if it's just kind of like the, the couple comes in and they, you know, it's like shit happens. <laughs> you know, anyone can be vulnerable to trauma and loss and infertility and all sorts of other challenges in life. And we just happen to be one of them. I find that then they have a more collaborative approach to the coping rather than the blame game. Yeah, it's great. It's actually why I created this podcast, because if we can talk about these things, I think it restores a certain dignity. And as you pointed out, the more alone we are with something, the more we start to associate those emotions and responses with our own character. And so yeah. somebody will come and say, I am so anxious about having a child. I can't stop Googling ways of having a child. And you can sit in front of them and say, actually, <laughs> for the past decade, I have had people just like you coming saying the exact same things. This is not you. This is your body doing yeah. its job and actually telling you to get out of the way so it can actually do what it's supposed to do. <laughs> but that's hard for us, I think, to acknowledge that we have such... and and. Dare I say it, you know, Freud was wrong about many things, but his initial instincts about our drives and how they're all often being masqueraded to be civilized it holds true, right? This is always trying to push through to the surface. And we get so confused by that, by how that affects our personalities. Well, yeah. And you just brought up something else that, that often comes up for couples in that one of the very dramatic reactions that women have when they're going through infertility is that it is, it is excruciatingly painful to deal with other people's pregnancies. And so much so that they often have to socially isolate themselves, even from a sister, a cousin, a best friend. This is not something men often have to do. And this is something that men really struggle with understanding, especially if it's like their family member that their wife is refusing to see. And again, I always go back to, this is a primal instinct, okay? It's like, imagine if someone locked you in a box with a limited amount of oxygen, how you would start to respond 
when that oxygen was dissipating. You would be frantic, you would be irrational, and that's, that is the reaction that's happening right now. You can't judge it. And the, the women judge themselves, they hate themselves. And that's just adding more layers to their own suffering. And I mean, I, I, I normalize that for them as well. I always say that is a symptom of infertility. It's not a reflection of who you are as a person. Yeah, no, I've been with many couples going through that. And I don't want to become defensive as a man around it. I was much more inclined when I started this work not to see gender differences. And as I've done more work, it's clear how we are socialized and how that is different. But I have been with many couples, including men, where they can't, they won't go to baby showers. They don't want to go out. They don't want to hear stories about other people who have become pregnant. What do you say to people that are struggling? I mean, what, I guess people just need to honor their, their fragility in the moment. Or what, what do you say to couples that feel like they can't socialize in the same way they used to? Well, having been through it personally, I would certainly never judge anyone else for having those mm-hmm. thoughts and feelings. And what I always say is you do need to make space for that pain that you're experiencing at certain moments. I mean, one one of my clients had a, a great analogy. She said, if you've just been in an accident and you were a, a paraplegic in a wheelchair, I highly doubt someone would say, hey, do you want to come mo- on, out on Sunday and watch me run a marathon? And to her, it was like, it, it was very similar. It was like, you know, how sure. could you not understand how painful this would be for us? But the response women get in this situation is, wow, you're selfish. You should be, you should be able to be happy for other people. And my response is always that anyone who says that just hasn't been in this situation themselves, but you can be gracious about it. We're not talking about being, you know, rude and, you know, with people and, and hurtful. We're talking about maybe approaching people who you're close to and saying, listen, like, I love you. I'm so happy for you, but I'm in a really tough place right now. So I hope you'll understand if I need to take some space. Well, and I love that you have brought up culture so many times today, because at the end of the day, the expectations that are on us, whether we feel pressure to go celebrate the someone you know about to give birth or go to a birthday party where there's kids running around, these are cultural expectations, right? These are cultural fantasies that we all inherit. And as I hear you saying that ultimately we we have the dignity to make a decision for ourselves. And if people don't understand, say la vie, right? That's that's yeah. unfortunate. But the analogy you used is great. Maybe you can't see it, it's kind of invisible. But if someone had just been in a major accident and had lost the use of their limbs, you'd be very careful about suggesting things that could cause them a lot of uh, mental and emotional anguish. And so we kind of just have to get over ourselves a little bit, actually. And, and, you know, and I struggle with it too. It's not like you just snap your fingers and you're all of a sudden accepting in your life. It's a constant process of reimagining what you need, what others need, and to chisel at old views of of yourself and others so you become more open to other people's pain. I, I think people react to this particular issue so strongly because women are supposed to be the givers, the nurturers, the ones who are so invested in going and supporting each other's baby showers mm-hmm. and birthdays. Mm-hmm. It's it's just not seen as as acceptable for women to put themselves first. That's not traditional in most cultures. 
Well, and let's make pain for the best friend who is pregnant. Let's make room for their pain. <laughs> that maybe it's hard, it's sad for them that their friend can't be there. I mean, that's also legitimate, oh, right? Sure. It's it's about including as much as possible. And I guess not reacting to our vulnerability in these defensive ways. And also, and I talk about this a lot on my podcast and in my writing, you know, that we we want to rise from the ashes, right? That's we we want that narrative of kind of rising from difficult experience and learning something is kind of undercuts so much of what we do. Sometimes things are just hard. Sometimes yeah. you can't go somewhere or you can't go. That's just painful. And there may not be something redemptive about it. I think you said that earlier and that's so tricky, right? How do you, how do you keep hope alive? Someone says, Oh no, this will work out. And you said, well, actually it might not work out. You know, it may, it may not work out. And I think you and I are touching on what is probably one of the most difficult things for us as human beings who can imagine a future to actually bear, which is the ne the negativity of that. Not the negativity as in being bad, but the absence, the absence of something moving forward in a direction that we imagine. And that's very painful, but um, it's really inspiring. It's really great to sit with you and because we've, you know, we've sat with each other many times, less, of course, in the last number of years, but it's really great to see how you've really grown into this role and actually really become an, an authority and an advocate for people that are going through this. Because uh, like you said in the beginning, uh, and I often talk about this, we, we live in an, in an age where these emotional aspects of our experience are more in the open and there's a kind of expectation that the community and culture around us can catch us when we're falling. Yeah. And and you felt that firsthand a feeling of like you were alone and and really yeah. there was a dir a dearth of of support and understanding about what you were going through. Yeah. Yeah. I I know working with couples and individuals I go home sometimes and it almost helps me process myself or things that I've had questions around. As a final question, does it help you? Do you revision and reimagine parts of what you went through seeing other couples? Is it do you learn more about yourself in the process? Oh, a hundred percent. It makes me see in one way how similar we all are as people, as I'm sure you know, like deep down what we all really want and need, the sense of belonging and a sense of purpose in our lives. Uh, you know, feeling like we're we're seen and we're heard. Yeah. Um, but it also points out, you know, how sometimes we're different. You know, sometimes I see couples whose approaches to things are so different than my own. Hmm. Sometimes couples come in and they're like, no, oh, we'd really like a kid. But if it doesn't happen, we'll be cool with that. So maybe we'll try IVF once. And if it doesn't work, we'll walk away. And I just think, wow, like that wasn't me. <laughs> like I was like, I was like, I'll, I'll, I'll like conquer the world to have a child. I'm never stopping. <laughs> so it's interesting to see again, like at the core, how we're all so similar, but then individual differences can create so much interest and diversity just in terms of who we are. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I find that too. I'll learn from how others can approach something that I too would take either really seriously or be upset about. And there's a kind of casualness. I'm like, wow, that's like a superpower. Like, how are you doing that? Yeah, that's, exactly. That's like, that's amazing. Well, it sounds like the people you work with are really lucky to have you. And I hope those that are listening who are interested in this or maybe going through this, that they've been able to understand themselves a bit better, 
or just learn that there's really a community out there so they're less alone. As you pointed out, and in my interview with Gabor Mate, that this this idea of of having people around us is is crucial. And and it's funny that we're saying that because ultimately that's what procreation is, right? It's to populate, (laughs) move the family forward. You know, I'm in an area right now with a lot of farming here and that's what having kids often meant, right? It was 14 children, 12 of them survived, two miscarriages. And frankly, 50, 60 years ago, people wouldn't have been talking about this in the same way. I don't think. I don't mean that they didn't carry trauma in the same way in the body or emotionally, but we certainly shifted. And that's what you said about culture. People come to this from such different lenses in terms of talking about it and making space. So thank you for making space with me. (laughs) Thank you. It's my pleasure and it's my honor to be working with all the couples I work with. Yeah. Okay. See you soon. Okay. Thanks. Eric and I met in our internship over a decade ago. (laughs) I was thrilled to be able to learn about all the ways she has taken her love of the craft and dedicated it to such a worthy cause. As we were developing as therapists, we would sit and support each other as we were learning and establishing ourselves. And I left the interview just so chuffed by her expertise, passion, and the nuance in her thinking. I want to send love out to all of you who are wrestling with gaining understanding about what you or your partner is going through, and strength to keep thinking, reflecting, and remaining curious. Thank you for joining me today, and please send any comments, thoughts, and requests for future episodes to feedback at mitchellsmolkin.com. Until the next time. I remain faithfully yours.